Good morning. Well, in this teaching series, we've been asking one another to consider aspects of the world. And there are these blueprints in the wisdom tradition found in Scripture. And in this series, we've been wanting to extrapolate on that, to follow through on those paths of wisdom for today. So we've got the blueprint there in the Bible, and we're wanting to, uh, to, to follow that through. And so today, consider the lovers. We're going to look at a part of Scripture that is love poetry. What wisdom might the Almighty have for us today? Well, let's begin in prayer. Uh, this prayer is uh, known as the Collect for Purity. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to have our first reading. How happy we are for you, O King. We praise your love even more than wine. This is called Solomon's Song of Songs. Now, the scriptures connect Solomon with wisdom in the same kind of way that David is connected with the Psalms. And there's this kingly figure that appears at several points throughout the song. But Solomon is not really here in the song for his wisdom. It's more for his fabulousness. So if you remember, Solomon asked the Almighty uh, for wisdom. But as a result of that, he was given greatness and wealth. So the Solomon here is not so much Solomon the wisest man on earth as Solomon the most fabulous man on earth, Solomon the most desirable man on earth. He's got everything. He's dripping with luxury. There are two lovers singing the song and they're kind of playing with Solomon as a character, Solomon as a symbol of luxury. See, the lovers here are not philosophizing about their love. They're basking in their love. They're not singing about love as a concept. They're singing about the love that they share themselves. It's the love that they experience. But Solomon's song is a bit of a mystery. Where did it come from? How did it wind up in Scripture? And in the song, it's actually a bit hard to work out What's going on? Who's speaking? Sometimes it's not even clear how many voices there are. It's not obvious if it's one song or a collection of songs. If it's a collection, where does one part end and the next part begin? No one can agree. But if it's a single song, then doesn't it have to have a plot, some sort of progression that we can follow? Because that's not really there either. Art is kind of slippery, isn't it? But we do seem to have the same two characters sharing a single relationship, and they're presented as a universal couple. They kind of represent all lovers. So we can all connect with them, even today, because of this. There's something timeless about them. It hardly seems to matter that they're 
they're from an ancient time, from a foreign culture. There's still a connection there today. And the scholar Cheryl Exum points to the immediacy of their voices. The lovers speak directly to one another. They're speaking straight from the heart. They're not talking about the way things were. They're also not talking about their hopes for the future. They're talking about this moment right here, right now. And there are these blurry cycles of desire and fulfillment that are kind of spiraling around and around. It's very Hebrew, as Melinda was saying about Ecclesiastes a few weeks ago. It's not a linear thing. And we're not quite sure where one of those moments ends and the next one begins. There's this spiraling. It's all, it's all present focus. Everything's happening here in this moment. And it kind of suspends that moment in time. My dove is hiding behind the rocks, behind an outcrop on the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and your face is lovely. Catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. My lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, return to me, my love, like a gazelle or a young stag on the rugged mountains. Did you know that God is not actually referred to in the song? It's a bit like the book of Esther where God doesn't get a mention. So... How does the song relate to God? See, the song could be an allegory where the woman is pursuing the man uh, in the way that God pursues Israel. That was a Hebrew tradition. Or the woman being loved by the man represents the, uh, the church being loved by Jesus. That was a Christian, that's been a, a Christian way of reading it. But neither of these approaches would have made much sense when the song was written. It is love poetry. Parts of it are erotic and there's kind of too much texture. There's too many gritty details for those readings to be obvious. But at the same time, the fact that the song is actually in Scripture, the fact that it's become part of both the Hebrew tradition and the Christian tradition, suggests that there is more going on. It is love poetry, yes, but we're being prompted to look for layers, look for deeper meanings. And the song itself, it's not that explicit. It's not a sex manual, it's not pornographic, it's not clinical. It's more like an impressionist painting. It's a bit blurry, it's suggestive. Artistically, the song lends itself to those deeper meanings. So how do we make sense of this? Well, I think it's interesting that the song is something for public performance. It's even read as part of the Passover in Jewish communities. Now, that might sound strange. Erotic poetry for public consumption? And sometimes churches treat the song as a kind of an adults-only thing. Um, you, you might hear it called the sealed section of the Bible or something like that. But 
remember, it's not that explicit. There's euphemism, there are erotic metaphors, but it remains implicit. Somehow, there's something user-friendly about it, something accessible. The song is somehow for all of us. Let's keep digging into this. Can you imagine an engagement party or a wedding? Can you imagine the song as part of a community event? You have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine, your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your clothes are scented like the cedars of Lebanon. Awake, north wind. Rise up, south wind. Blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love. Taste its finest fruits. So imagine an engagement party or a wedding. So imagine the man standing on one side, the woman standing on the other side, and in the middle are the daughters of Jerusalem, the friends. See, it's not a drama, it's a song, but it's not a solo, it's not a serenade, and because of the daughters of Jerusalem, it's not even a duet. The daughters of Jerusalem kind of make it a community experience. So imagine this being performed. The wedding's done, the party's underway, and now people start calling for the bride and groom. Come up, come on, it's time, let's sing the song. And as this ordinary couple begin to raise their voices to one another, look, they might not be the best singers, a few friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, are kind of egging them on. But as they sing, they begin to inhabit the characters of the song. And as they sing, they begin to express things that they didn't know they had words for. They begin to discover things that maybe they didn't know they felt. And as they sing, their love starts to take flight and the whole community is taking part at first, they're just entertained, maybe they're chuckling at the awkwardness of this new couple, but then they're beginning to be transported themselves. This song is pulling on their own memories, their own desires. This is not just about this one couple. This is more than a wedding party. These voices in the song have become an embodiment of desire. So even though the lovers are totally absorbed in one another and the love that they share, we are being ushered into that world. So we're not so much being taught about love as invited to be lovers. The song connects with us because we all know love. We all know desire. As we're born, as we're are raised as we grow up, we all experience the attention and care of others in some way. 
And some of us might feel like we've been shortchanged on that. Childhood can be desperately hard and traumatic. But I think it's fair to say that love and desire are something that in some way we are all tuned into. Love resonates with us. We were made to love. We were made to be loved. And as we hear the song, that bubbles to the surface. Do you recognise those moments of desire in your own life? See, we all experience euphoria. We work, we play, we have flashes of inspiration, we create, we start things, we get adrenaline rushes. The spark of new ideas, the innovation, the planning phase, the new thing. Setting out, getting going, testing the waters. What keeps us going when there's work to be done? And the frenzy of trying to finish, trying to see something through, trying to meet the deadline. Desire. We play sport. We strive and strain, we win, we lose. We celebrate our team. The crowd roars as one. Our hopes rise, our hopes are dashed. Desire. We thirst and hunger. That sugary warmth, that caffeinated shaft of light. The full stomach. Not overfull, but just satisfied desire. Those moments of noticing, of satisfaction, those moments of ascension, transcendence, transfiguration, there's nothing like them. We are all reaching out with longing. We desire. We are lovers. Where has your lover gone, O woman woman of of rare beauty? beauty. Which way did he turn so we can help you find him? My lover has gone down to his garden, to his spice beds, to browse in the gardens and gather the lilies. I am my lover's and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. As we said before, there is something timeless about the song, something tantalising and exalted. The way it comes across in the song, song, it's a love that's forever in progress. There's this spiral of longing and satisfaction, but there's not really a lot of closure. So you could actually reach the end of the song with this deer on the mountains thing, and you could go straight back to the beginning, let him kiss me. It's not really closure. The lovers are constantly in motion. They keep on spiralling around one another. But this is also a love that's grounded. It's fully earthed, fully textured, fully detailed. There are so many images in the song. There are all those natural images, gazelles and deers eating in a flowery field. And there are those primal 
visceral images being carried into a bedroom. The scholar Marsha Falk says you can see country and city cultivated and wild, the calm of Eden and the storm force of the world beyond, indoor and outdoor, support and isolation. She says it shows love innocent and ideal, love torrential and powerful, love privately enjoyed, love threatened. You can catch the messages coming out here. The earth is good. Bodies are amazing. Love is powerful. And desire is mutual. She and he are both giving full voice to their feelings. It's a love that's grounded. You sense it like a hug, like a hand placed on your cheek, like a startling fragrance in your face. It's tactile. It's part of the song's power. Love here, it's fierce, it's abiding. You feel it in your insides. Can you feel yourself getting a bit caught up in it? So consider the lovers. They're getting caught up in one another. They are immersing themselves in one another. Who is this sweeping in from the desert, leaning on her lover? I aroused you under the apple tree, where your mother gave you birth, where in great pain she delivered you. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. Tammy and I went into a sex shop once. There was a particular reason for it. What struck me was the fake body parts on display. There's something disembodied about extra body parts. Now, I'm not saying that sex toys are evil and there's never a place for them, but consider that there is something disembodied about extra body parts. We have here a separation of sex from real bodies. There's an Australian theologian uh, by the name of Matthew Tan. His blog's called Awkward Asian Theologian. He argues that uh, pornography is about possibilities. It's about dreaming up all the places that sex could go. It's about what sex could be. It's virtual reality. And in this way, pornography reflects this idea that what is possible is superior to what actually is. Virtual reality and, and that world of possibilities becomes more real, more desirable than what's actually in front of us, the real bodies we have, the real people that we encounter. But what the song points us to is what's right in front of us. It's connection. It's real, sticky, relational connection. Ultimately, the lovers 
don't actually act out a fantasy involving King Solomon. The king kind of fades into the background in the song and Solomon is overshadowed by the real weighty tactile presence of themselves, their own bodies, their own space and presence. Each commits themselves to one particular body, the body of their lover. In their drive for one another, they actually want to close off other possibilities and options. They don't want the virtual, they want what's right in front of them. They want the here and now. Their desires are fully grounded. They're not trying to expand their desires to limitless possibilities. They're trying to bring their desires to completion in one another. It's about getting caught up in the moment, endlessly, full immersion, fully sensing, fully knowing the other. It's about drilling down, spiraling around, and going deeper. Sometimes uh, we, I think we treat desire as something uncomfortable, something awkward. It's a bit much. And so it becomes something secret and shameful. But then we swing to the opposite extreme and we think, oh, desire, it has to be set free. It has to be unleashed and liberated. There should be no constraints. Love should be free. But the song is teaching us not to liberate desire and not to suppress desire either, but to sharpen desire. Desire is asking for the particularity of knowing up close in the moment, in the here and now. That's where life is found. It's about drilling down to that pinpoint of light, of intimacy, connection. That's where we find the everything. You know the everything because you know the one. And you find the everything in the one. If you think about it, that's how God knows us and how we know God in the moment, in the details, up close. We're talking about incarnation. That's how we know Jesus, isn't it? Jesus who arrived not in the abstract, but in the dust of history. And that's how we know God, that God comes to us in human form and in the particularity of that one man, that one moment. When God appears to us in Christ, we get more of God in the particularity than we could have got in the abstract. God's not worried about getting tied down. God puts all the eggs in one basket with us. God's identity is tethered to humanity. We have a shared history. And instead of getting tired of that, we find God drawing closer, looking for more, craving more attention, more intimacy, more depth. And that's how desire works for us as well. The song is teaching us about ourselves, that we are lovers. And it teaches us about the nature of our desires and how they can be met. So it's, it's a bit of a paradox. You might think, we should go broad, but actually we should go deep. Trying every option is not the way. We don't need more stuff or more relationships. We need less stuff and deeper relationships. In particularity, 
we find more than in accessing all the possibilities. Just as God is most fully known in one person, we find ourselves more fully as we deepen and sharpen our relational focus. Desire comes together in real bodies. So let's look at four examples of this just briefly as we finish up this morning. So that uh, pattern that Melinda introduced to us of noticing, of naming and reflecting. Let's ask about this now. Where are we not grounded? Where am I not grounded? Where is God calling us to go deeper, to be more earthed in our desires? Well, for one thing, we don't forget our family in pursuit of friends. We want to honour our closest bonds. Friendships are not a convenience to be picked up and discarded as the need arises, but they're something to be nurtured and deepened. Secondly, we want to go deep with our life choices as well. We don't forever want to be keeping all the options open. We want to drill down. We don't want to opt for travel if we can help it, but we want to go deep. And if your, life, if, if your line of work does involve travel, then I encourage you, dig into that experience. What does it look like for you to stay grounded? Thirdly, we commit to Christian community. Church is more like family than a franchise. It's messy, it's inefficient, but it's bodily. It's exactly the right kind of mess. Church is not something to shop around with, but something to go local with. And instead of trying to perfect our own nuclear families, we understand that spiritual family, for all its difficulties and heartaches, is where we see new creation, new birth. Finally, we seek community offline in real bodies. We see social media as something for enriching that. It's not a replacement, not even a supplement if we can help it. And so instead of the promise of a huge circle of virtual friends and virtual promises, uh, the feed offering endless new options, we want to pursue flesh and blood connection, the intimacy of meeting face to face. Let's pray together. Spirit of Christ, Show us the Father's heart for us so that our love will flow out of that great love. King Jesus, you came to bring life and life to the full and we want to live, we want to dig into life. So teach us, we ask. Shape our desires, show us how to sharpen our desires so that we can be grounded in the earth, grounded in one another, grounded in Christ. Amen.